Welcome to the Building to Scale podcast, where we bring real entrepreneur stories that showcase the challenges and successes in building and scaling an entrepreneurial business. Our host, Jeff Chastain, is a business transformation coach with Admentis, where he coaches business leaders and their teams with a proven set of principles and tools helping them gain clarity in and get more of what they want from their business. Make sure to stick around until the end of the show, and we will reveal how you can become our next guest. Hello, everybody. Jeff Chastain here with another episode of the Building to Scale podcast, where I just get the opportunity really to exchange stories with entrepreneurial business leaders and influencers. Uh, got a good one today. I haven't dealt, delved real deep into it yet, just because I wanted to make sure everybody hears the story at the same time. But this one's going to be a, a unique industry, a unique business for sure I haven't ever heard of. So today's guest with me here is Tim Angelillo. And it's Sourced Craft Cocktails down out of Austin, Texas. So first off, Tim, welcome to the show. And thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day here to talk with us. Jeff, it's wonderful to be with you uh, and your audience. I hope everybody is having a good day. And we're excited. Just remember, in Sourceland, it's always 5 o'clock somewhere. <laughs> 5 o'clock somewhere, no matter what. Yep. So yeah, tell us a little bit about this business. What's, what's going on these days? Yeah, so what we do, uh, we started in Austin in 2015, uh, so we're six years young, uh, and we're now um, just about to open our ninth market, which will be Houston. So we've, we've spread out to almost the top 10 US DMAs, uh, and what we do is we source craft cocktails from your phone directly to your front door, uh, which okay. in today's moment, it's like, wow, that's perfect, right? Yeah, uh, we've all been trapped in our home for a year. Um, the U.S. consumer enjoyed 14% more ounces of alcohol in 2020 than in 2019. Uh, so not only have we been trapped in our home, but we've been enjoying spirits uh, even more so than years prior. Uh, and lastly, we all ordered everything um, from an e-commerce perspective in the last year, right? Because um, it was concerning to go physically to a brick and mortar business. And so, um, you know, sourced, we sort of saw that potential future um, quite a while ago, and we're already growing at triple digits year over year. Uh, and obviously, the pandemic put it onto a really crazy growth curve. Um, but ultimately, what sourced is built to do is solve the regulatory environment of alcohol distribution. So, Jeff, have, have you ever had a guest on or had experience with what's called the three-tiered system before? No, I haven't personally on that one. So what's, what's, what is that one? Okay, perfect. So if you'll join me, we're going to go on an American history lesson. Okay. So before we start, I want to make sure your audience knows, is it valuable to understand this lesson? And numerically, how valuable is it? The U.S. alcohol industry is a $232 billion annual marketplace. So it's a pretty big addressable market. Yeah. And my favorite part is there's 13 economic declines since the Great Depression in this country. So there have been 13 times in the last almost 100 years that the economy has gone negative in this country. And in every single one of them, the alcohol consumption rate in that year has increased. Makes sense. It's what my eight-year-old calls a math fact. This $232 billion industry is quite literally recession-proof. 
Yeah. So pretty big business opportunity. And here's our American history lesson. This evening in 2021, the same regulatory environment that governs how the alcohol gets distributed was written and enacted on December 5th, 1933. So there's been no innovation whatsoever in almost 90 years wow. in how alcohol gets distributed. And that law is a very informal one. It's the 21st Amendment to the United States Constitution. And okay. what it ended on December 5th, 1933 was the time period of 14 years in this country called prohibition, where the distillation, distribution, sale and consumption of alcohol was illegal. And so it's really important to understand why, what that law was trying to um, solve for. So you understand why it still regulates this evening. And what it was trying to solve for was the maximum amount of taxation. That okay. is what the government wanted in 1933. And here's why, right? In 1933, it was the worst year of the Great Depression. There were 50 million Americans who were on a breadline and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president at the time, had come out with what became known as the New Deal. So the federal government was going to become the employer itself, and it was going to put Americans back to work building infrastructure, roads, bridges, tunnels, et cetera. Great plan. Yeah. One big problem. How in the hell are we going to pay for it? <laughs> Details. <laughs> Detail, right? And so what the government looked at was, okay, sales tax revenue, not a good option because no one has any money to buy anything. So that traditional mechanism, not great. Property taxes, income taxes, also not great because the private markets were so down in 1933 at the height of the Great Depression. And so they basically went looking for categories to tax that they weren't currently taxing. And they went, oh, right, alcohol. People are still doing it. How do we build a system that allows us to tax the same bottle of alcohol as many times as possible? And what they invented is called the three-tiered system. So Jeff, give me uh, one of your personal favorite brands. You like McAllen, Tito's, Don Julio. Give me a brand you like. We'll use that. Um, yeah, probably. What's Don Julio look like? Yeah. Yeah, Don Julio is great, right? So Don Julio legally is called tier one. Okay. Right? Referred to as the supplier. And they're only able to distill the tequila and market it. They can never sell a bottle directly to you or anyone in your audience. And okay. the reason why, remember, we're trying to raise tax revenues. 1933, we got 50 million people to put to work, right? If we let the bottle be sold directly to you, we'd only be able to tax the bottle one time. Yep. Not enough tax revenue for the sin of the alcohol industry, right? Because that is how the government looked at it at that time period, because we're a Puritan-founded country and they had made it illegal for 14 years because of our proverbial historical moral compass, right? Um, so they created tier two, the distributor, right? So um, if you go down to Deep Ellum, I know you're headquartered in, in yep. Dallas or you're here in Austin on 6th Street or you're in New Orleans, you're on Bourbon Street, et cetera, right? Wherever the watering holes are in your town, the distributor is the truck with George Clooney's face on the side of it. Yep. Right? So legally, tier two buys the Don Julio and they're able to distribute it to two out of three doorknobs in America, right? As it relates to alcohol distribution. Tier three 
are those two doorknobs. They're referred to as the retailer. There are two kinds. Doorknob number one is called on-premise. It's a bar, a restaurant, and what happens is they can sell you a Don Julio margarita on the premises, but you cannot walk out the front door with it. You must enjoy the alcohol on the premises because that is what the license and the permit that is all tied to the taxation permits, right? Doorknob number two is called off-premise. It's a liquor store, right? You go in, you buy the bottle of Don Julio, but you cannot drink it in the store. There's a big red sign on the front door that says you must enjoy the alcohol off the premises. Yep. Right? So what I like to refer to is we don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. Sure. <laughs> Right. So they can sell you an entire sealed bottle of Don Julio, but you must leave the building. Okay. Right? That equals the three tiered system. And what that means is that the distributor, right, the people with the Don Julio on the truck, they cannot go to doorknob number three. Doorknob number three is what source solves for. It's what we refer to as the non premise meaning it's not a bar and it's not a liquor store. It's an unlicensed building. It's every single home of every one of your audience members right now. It also happens to be their office building or their art gallery or their fashion retail store. Your business, if you're not in the bar or liquor store business is a non-premise door, right? And what Source built was we built a route to market to those non-premise doors. So the question is, again, back to, is it worth understanding this journey to apply lessons to your business is how many doors by percentage are non-premise, right? So it's $232 billion recession-proof market, but what percent of doors did Sourced unlock? And that's my favorite part. 98% of doors in America are non-premise. Yeah. So we just opened up 98% of new points of distribution for the $232 billion recession-proof monster that is the U.S. alcohol industry. No, it makes sense. And really to that point, it applies across the board. It's like, okay, where do you find the unrealized, untapped market at that point? Because, and, and maybe I'm not informed enough in this industry, but I have not heard of anybody doing this kind of delivery type something before now. I, I think we were talking beforehand, and, and I know it's, I guess it's what you were talking about tier three with the the restaurants that they just changed that one here roughly a year ago with the pandemic to say, okay, now you can take it out. Now you can do carry out kind of a thing there. But I thought that was basically the limits to it. So I, I had never heard of this kind of distribution model. So again, I don't know how unique it is, but it's, it's at least unique to me first time. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is uh, because there are five of us that are nationally scaled e-com players. Uh, and what's interesting because of the pandemic is the e-com world of the alcohol industry went from 2% to what will be 20% over a 24-month time period. Yeah. Think That's... About that. That's $50 billion in 24 months. And there are only five of us that are sort of the national scale players. Um, Drizzly just got acquired uh, by Uber for $1.1 billion, right? Um, Reserve Bar, major investment stake, uh, from Southern Glaciers, a uh, Dallas-based company that is the largest distributor uh, in the country, right? So this marketplace, while very, very early, is growing astronomically quickly. Uh, and what makes Source different is our North Star, right? Our North Star, which I think is really important for your audience of entrepreneurs out there, it's you've got to have a North Star. 
right? No matter how fast we grow, really almost in a manner to which to be able to grow so fast, right? We went from triple digit growth before a pandemic year over year. And then in the pandemic, that increased by 10x, right? Because there's just so much unbelievable demand. Yep. And what we needed to do was have a North Star. Why does everyone get out of bed at Sourcecraft Cocktails every morning? What is it that we're describing to our consumer that we do, right? 900,000 consumers of cocktail kits distributed. Like, what do we stand for? And for us, we want to be of service, right? And it's what also makes us different than Drizzly or Minibar or Reserve Bar. We want to be of service, not to just legally compliant distribution of the bottle of Don Julio. Our consumer, right, who's high HHI affluence, um, enjoys premium things, has a you know affluent lifestyle, they want the handcrafted margarita or Paloma. They don't want a tequila shot. There's yeah. not anything wrong with somebody who wants a tequila shot. That's literally what Drizzly's for, right? They brought you a bottle of tequila. You opened it, you drank half of it, and you enjoyed the effect of the tequila. Nothing wrong with that as long as you're not going to drive, right? Uh, yeah. But our audience wants that super premium experience, and they want the finished experience, not the raw ingredient, just the alcohol. Uh, and the reason that we um, could see that future was because we wanted to be of service to a very specific consumer set. And that consumer set was, you know, urban, affluent, um, and liked nice experiences and had the disposable income to be able to afford. No, it makes sense. And it's, to me, it's, it's really key, like you said, to virtually any business there that you've got to know, okay, what sets us apart? What are we aiming towards? And, and really, what's our target audience kind of a thing there? Because you could very easily go really wide with this and try to do everything from, hey, we're going to deliver your case of beer all the way up to your custom cocktail kind of a thing here and effectively dilute your image at that point by just trying to be everything to everybody right there, even though it's because I see that, I was actually talking with another guest not too long ago. It's like, okay, just because you're a CPA and now you handle investment finances, it's still, it's only one, two degrees off there, but all of a sudden you just start adding on and start adding on and you're really wide at that point and not very deep from a business standpoint. Well, I think that's one of the things as entrepreneurs and I, I'm you know, uh, blessed uh, to um, have that drive and that spirit and that determination uh, that others in your audience uh, do as entrepreneurs. But I think one of the things we have to be careful of, and I'll speak from my own personal experience, like I wake up every morning and I have this billboard that's literally blinking in my head the moment my eyes open. And it's the, it's the question, why? Like, why does that not exist? Or why can this not be so? Or why didn't this get solved yet, right? Which leads me to have to be careful that I don't become the raccoon, right? Like shiny object, shiny object, shiny object. And I think really, you know, when you think about uh, sourced, we had a lot of opportunities to adjacent markets like beer and wine. Uh, we had a lot of opportunities to non-alcoholic beverages. We had a lot of opportunities to food, right? But we don't, we didn't explore any of those because we felt very, very specific that distilled spirits was going to continue to grow and take share from beer and wine, which was an assumption six years ago that turned out uh, in a very blessed, fortunate way to be absolutely correct. And we wanted to do one thing 
better than anyone else in the marketplace. And we've been able to do that by being very, very focused on becoming the largest craft cocktail delivery business in this country. Yeah, and it's it's very valid point there. So I'm curious, kind of backing up your history a little bit, just again, telling stories and everything. You said before it was uh, technology front and in and, and Yahoo. How did that turn into big corporation into now uh, entrepreneurial kind of journey right here? Yeah, no, totally. I, I went the complete opposite way, right? Uh, most entrepreneurs determine they're an entrepreneur, um, you know, and do so early and start their first journey, uh, you know, early in their 20s or mid 20s or whatnot. It took me, I was a late bloomer. It took me a, a lot, or I'm slow on the uptake, one of the two. Uh, took me uh, a while. I actually spent the first 15 years of my career in publicly traded companies. So I was at Time Warner um, helping build the experiential marketing division of Sports Illustrated. Uh, and then I was at Yahoo and I helped lead Yahoo Sports uh, and some of their e-commerce uh, property. And so I spent 15 years as an entrepreneur in a big company, which is possible. Um, you, you need to um, enjoy feeling like the only salmon swimming up the proverbial stream. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not real comfortable possible, but I did it for a long yeah. time. And um, eventually I sort of determined, hey, I like making things. Um, and I had gotten to a point of seniority in my career where I wasn't making anything other than emails, right? I, I bought this company. I sold that division. I hired these 50 people. We fired those 25 and I just sort of made emails for a living. And, um, I just got to a point where that wasn't how I derived happiness. I wanted to like actually be able to make something, um, you know, which I think is one of the blessings of being an entrepreneur. It's like, we're the people that get out of bed and go get shit done, you know, and yeah. I love that about it. And 50% of the time I get something done that's correct. And 50% of the time I get something done that's absolutely epic failure. That's a good learning lesson, which I apply to the next time and move on, you know? Um, so for me, I went from big companies into entrepreneurial endeavors by um, determining that I was reinventing business models at these publicly traded companies because I liked making something from scratch and that's what really led me into, you know, the last 15 years of kind of building my own businesses. So how'd you go from that switch of, again, technology to alcohol of all things kind of a thing? That's, that's not something, again, you probably oh, just dreamed up, hey, let's, let's go open an alcohol business here. No, yeah, I was very, very fortunate uh, where I was uh, one of the senior leaders at a um, privately held advertising agency that wrote the line, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Wow. Okay. Uh, yep. Yep. We wrote a lot of lines. Uh, that one was by far and away the most successful. <laughs> uh, and for us, what we're really good at was entertainment marketing. And so everything that we did dealt with the hospitality industry, which meant the real business was alcohol. And I ended up working in each of those three tiers. Uh, I worked for the largest on-premise retailer. I worked for the largest distributor. And I worked for one of the fastest growing vodka brands uh, that exited to Heaven Hill in a very successful way uh, with Deep Eddie Vodka. And so I had an inside baseball front row ringside seat to how the alcohol industry's distribution model worked because I had been a senior leader in each and every one of those tiers. So I not only had the relationships with the alcohol state boards, but I knew what was possible and what was not possible around the distribution model. No, that makes sense. And yeah, having that 
having the knowledge, the industry knowledge there is, is for sure a big help right there. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, you know, thinking back on, you know, if you're looking for your next project, thinking back on uh, it, it there, you have to be able to answer successfully one of two questions, either what do I know from my own experience, right? Or who do I know? Who yeah. I can, I always tell entrepreneurs, the most important thing we can do for each other is raise our damn hand and ask for help. <laughs> and that's one of the hardest things for most of us to do because we're, we're, we've got the ego, we've got the entrepreneurial spirit right there. We can do all this ourselves. We don't need everybody else. And yeah, that's. Well, yeah, and I, I also think we, we um, one, we're real all busy, right? Um, I like to, the way I sort of express it internally in our organization is I, I'm our uh, CDO. I'm our chief doing officer. Okay. Right? So I've, I've physically done every single job in this company, all the way down from the ops manager who's making the non-alcoholic mixers to I was our first driver. I was our first marketing person. I was our first salesperson. I was our first finance person. I was our first fill in the blank, which means I know how to do all the components. And um, the only way to learn how to do all the components of a company when you're starting it quite literally from scratch is you're really busy doing. And so I yeah. think one of the things that precludes us as entrepreneurs uh, from, from raising our hands is maybe in some part, it's our own fierce independence um, which can border on ego. But I think more of it is just we're so dang busy doing whatever needs to be done next. And we know that our fellow entrepreneur, we know she's really busy in her foxhole. And so we feel like we're inconveniencing. Uh, and, I, and I think that's maybe a misconception that collectively we all need to, to change, right? Like I try to make three hours in a week solely dedicated on helping someone else. Yeah. Right? And because there have been so many people on my journey who have made that time to help me. And that was, that was the only value proposition exchange. Uh, I was 24 years old. My first mentor said, Hey, someone's going to ask you for help. Cause I said, Hey, this is amazingly helpful. Like how do I repay you? And, and a guy named Brett Wilson ended up being the CEO of Gannett USA today when it was the largest newspaper in the entire world, really, really smart guy. And I said, hey, thanks so much for the time. Like, how do I repay you for this time? Because you make time when someone else asks you. Don't ever think that you're too busy or too important not to make that time or I'm going to come get you. It's like, <laughs> I'll be retired when I come get your ass, but I'm coming to get you, you know? Um, so I think it's really important to ask each other for help uh, so that we learn and can kind of crowdsource uh, the lessons. Yeah, no, and that's honestly a lot of why I'm, that's why I do what I do and why I do this for sure kind of a thing. Cause I look at it and the other side of it, I, I hear from a lot of people as well. I don't, I'm not the expert at whatever kind of a thing there. And you're probably seeing it yourself. It's like, you don't have to be, you know, one, you'll probably never have it all figured out as a business owner, but two, you don't have to be at the top of that to have not have somebody else two or three steps behind you that can simply learn from some, some, uh, some mistake you made or some, something you did right either way kind of a thing. There's, there's always somebody there that can learn just from from right behind you yeah the the fancy stanford phd term for what you're discussing uh and and i, I did not go to stanford nor do i have a phd i'm not bright enough for either of those two things for the record uh and not that they're bad things or great things but the fancy word from a tech perspective is called iterate yep right uh and and well one of the things we're very focused on is we don't chase things that aren't real so we're never going to chase perfection 
perfection is not real. It's people like me from a marketing standpoint, I make that up, right? Like, but I don't, I know that living your best life on Instagram isn't actual real life. So I'm not going to go chase and desire and strive for something that isn't actually real. What we're going to do is every single at bat we get, no matter what it is we do, right? New marketing campaign, new cocktail product, new market, right? New profit and loss uh, statement assumption. Doesn't matter what new it is, but we're going to make sure we're focused on two things. Number one, we're going to go at it 110%. So for us, we're either at zero or 110. There is no middle ground. And here's why. Doing something 80% of the way has a 100% failure rate. Yep. Right? And so, which leads to my largest professional pet peeve, which is what I call a case of the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Right? If you, if you go 80% of the way and then it fails, the experiment itself has been tainted. And then we go, well, I should have done this, or I could have done that. Or if I would have spent $5,000 on that ad campaign, it definitely would have worked. It's like, oh my God, now we wasted the money and the time because we can't actually evaluate whether it succeeded or failed, which is our number two, which is we're going to go, if we decide we're going to do it, we're going to go 110% at it. And we're going to set the goal line before we start. And the reason we said it before we start as we as human beings, including us super high risk, slightly insane entrepreneurs, we have a tremendous fail, uh, fear of failure. So we will change the goal line not to fail. We'll literally move the thing if we don't concretely set it in stone of this is what this experiment needs to uh, result in. And it's either a win or a failure. Right? And for us, the way we deal with the failure part of it is we don't look at it as loss. We look at it as learn. So 50% of the things that I did today were wins. They succeeded. We set the goal line before we started. It worked. 50% of the things, one out of every two, right, were literally failures. It did not meet the benchmarks that we set before we started. And we're okay with that because it was a learning lesson. Right? We pause. We figure out what in that experiment we need to learn from that caused it to fail. We reload and we shoot at it again, right? And, and I had this conversation with my 11-year-old son. I'm blessed. I have three uh, small children. My 11-year-old is my oldest, um, great basketball player. I played college basketball. He's, he's super into it uh, and he's a perfectionist. Uh, and he was very upset with his shooting performance. And so I Googled, LeBron James and Michael Jordan, right? So I wasn't going to have the debate on like, which one's better. I'm like, eh, they're probably both tie for greatest ever. LeBron James uh, career shooting percentage is 490, right? So he misses one out of every two shots. Michael Jordan, 510. He misses one out of two shots. It's like, hey, one out of two, batting 500 puts you in the Hall of Fame, right? But you have to know you've got to go at whatever you're doing next. You have to go at it either 110% or zero and then set the goal line before you start so that you can evaluate which one was a win and what was a learn. And out of the learn, no big deal. I'm not saying it's going to taste good. It, they pissed me off. You know, I'm like, God, that's really... <laughs> painful, painful learning lesson. But as long as I learn the lesson, I apply it to the next thing that I do, we're moving forward. 
Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because I had somebody along the way ask me, okay, looking back, things have happened or whatever in business. Do you regret any of those decisions or any of those things you did wrong there? It's like, regret? I don't think so because it, it's all a lesson learned that I wouldn't have gotten to where I am today without running into those stumbling blocks, without learning something there. If it was all smooth sailing, you probably would never reach your potential there because you're never challenged at that point. So it's, yeah, definitely having the having the challenges, having the, the failures at that point really makes us who we are. And it shouldn't be, shouldn't be a negative. It shouldn't be a regret. It's just something, okay, messed up. That didn't work. Let's learn from it. Let's move on. Let's do better next time. Yeah. I also think any entrepreneur that um, either uh, can't admit or isn't willing to share her or his failures uh, is not somebody to seek counsel from. True. Yeah. Because they're either we've, not we've all honest. failed at some point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're either not being honest or they've got an ego the size of the great Republic of Texas, <laughs> neither one of which is not a good use of your time. You know? Yeah. No, I've, I've seen both of those. So, yeah, they're, they're not usually the ones that you enjoy working with for sure. Totally. So, yeah, I appreciate the time and then say I'd, I'd love to keep the conversation going, kind of a thing there. But no, I know most people won't listen to an hour long podcast. Um, so always kind of like coming back at the end, and I know we've talked several things already, but one of those, if you were to go back, I guess company was six years ago, if you'd go back and try anything different or do anything different, would there be anything come to mind right off? Yeah, I love, I love this question. And thanks again for having me. I hope uh, those of you that are out there, you're in your grind, you're on the road, driving to your next meeting, you're doing whatever is next. You're on a run, taking care of kind of your, yourself and your, uh, uh, physical well-being. Um, I appreciate your time and uh, I wish you all the best. For us, I think one of the hardest things for entrepreneurs is going from the one at the very, very beginning where you're the one doing everything uh, to building a team of people that you're now responsible for training and managing and helping enable them to do all of the daily tasks. And I think the, 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 that's a really hard transition uh, I think for us as, as founders and entrepreneurs, I think it's a really hard tradition in a uh, transition in a corporate environment to go from the doer to the manager. Um, and I think the, the one piece that I would do again, uh, or I would do differently, is really remember that when you make that transition, right? When you go from, you are the salesperson because it's early stage and you're doing everything to you have a team of salespeople, the filter is no longer, your job isn't the client per se. Your job is now, how do you be of service to the salesperson so they can be of service to the client, right? It's the, it's the, the age old saying, are you going to give them a fish or teach them how to fish? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really hard thing, particularly as the founder CEO, where it's your baby and you want it done exactly the way that you did it. And you got to kind of like, take your hands off a little bit and let someone else fly. And you, the way um, for me, I've done a better job of that the last couple of years is really being focused on, I, look, if the client has a problem, I'm the one that needs to take accountability for it. And I'm going to hear from the client and we're going to make right whatever is possible. But outside of that, it's not my job to, to speak for or speak with the client. It's my job to understand what our salespeople need so that they can be of service to the client. And that filter change was really important. That perspective change was what allowed me to probably do a better job of that the last couple of years than maybe the first few. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear because that's really, to me, that's the ongoing theme of, of almost all the entrepreneurs kind of a thing is delegation is the hardest thing of making that switch, even from the 
the five to seven kind of person company all the way up to a, a 10, 12, because at that point, you can't manage everything. You can't wrap your hands around it anymore. You almost have to. Otherwise, you're effectively strangling the company at that point by still having everything run through you. But yeah, that that transition, like you said, from, okay, this is my way. This is my baby. This is the way it's always been done to now handing that off to somebody else who in reality could probably do it better than you can. But still, it's it's handing that off is the hardest thing that I've, I know I've dealt with it many times and hear it from a lot of people that that's just, that appears to be the the biggest struggle right there of, of making that transition, making that that real growth right there for sure. Absolutely. I mean, your job is to hire people smarter than you are. If you do your job well, that's what you're doing. Uh, and and the last thing I'll share is the for us, the way that you allow that delegation to happen effectively is by having a North Star at SourceForward to be of service and being able to communicate that not only just in an email or in an all hands or in a conference call, right? But but communicate it in who you hire, right? Are you hiring people that have that North Star in their DNA so that when they have to make an independent decision and you're not going to be a part of that decision, you know that they have the core filter that this company needs that fits your mission and your North Star that you set as the founder. I think that's really one way to, to, to at least create a little less anxiety in letting your hands off of every single decision. Yeah, no, and I, I perfectly agree with that. It, it goes down to it's it's one thing if you believe in your mission, if you believe in your your North Star there, but having everybody else believe in it as well, tie into it as well kind of a thing just makes a, a complete difference there in, in terms of how it works. Because honestly, you got everybody pulling together there rather than, like I said, worrying about, okay, well, yeah, he's making his sales numbers, but how is he making them? Is, is it really contrary to our mission or is he following up with our culture right there kind of a thing there? And it's having everybody on the same page is a big plus for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jeff, so much for having me. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope everybody has a great second half of 2021. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was definitely, definitely enjoyable. So I appreciate it and hopefully we'll continue to see good things from you. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Building to Scale podcast. If you would like to share your entrepreneurial business growth story, please visit buildingtoscale.com slash guest. If you got something out of this interview, would you do both us and our guest a favor and share it on your social media accounts? Don't forget to hit subscribe in your player so that you don't miss any future episodes and make sure to reach out to Jeff Chastain on any of the major social media networks or check us out at admentis.com.